You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 5th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The International Criminal Court rules that an investigation into war crimes committed during the conflict in Afghanistan can proceed. My guests Isabel Hilton and John Everard will discuss that and the day's other news, including the latest responses to COVID-19 and how much money actually matters in a successful election campaign. Plus, will sustainable fashion ever make the leap into the mainstream? Sustainable items such as a one-off piece made from recycled fabrics or an organic cotton jumper, are expensive. For many consumers, the decision to shop sustainably becomes not so much an ethical decision as an economic one. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea. We will start with that decision by the International Criminal Court that an investigation into war crimes committed during the conflict in Afghanistan can proceed. The inquiry will look at actions by Taliban, Afghan government forces, and American and allied troops. It's hard to know what, if anything, this will amount to, given that the US is not a signatory to the ICC and the Taliban have never been known for their interest in these structures of international justice. Afghanistan is a member of the court, however. Um, Isabel, the ICC's prosecutors have tried to get this to fly once before. This is the second attempt. It seems to have been waved through on appeal. But given those two key points that the US doesn't recognise the ICC and the Taliban don't recognise anything, is there much in the way of point to this? Those were the grounds uh, for turning it down the first time round, mm. in fact, um, because the investigation has been going on for ooh, more than 10 years. Um, and the prosecutor concluded that there was there were certainly cases to answer, uh, but was turned down uh, on the grounds that it wouldn't serve justice. And what that meant was, since no one would cooperate, it was going to be a diversion of resources into something that would produce no useful cases uh, that the ICC decided it, it couldn't afford and, and, and that time and attention could be better spent elsewhere. Now that this has been overturned, uh, I mean, I think the same objections are still pertinent. Um, the United States, and particularly this administration, is hardly likely to reverse its position. And they have threatened to revoke visas for anybody trying mm. to investigate American uh, crimes. You know, that it's not that there are not crimes to investigate. It's just that the prospects of being able to do it effectively and bring it to justice Particularly at this moment when the, the U.S. is trying to get out of Afghanistan, when they've made all sorts of concessions to the Taliban in order for that to happen. And the government in Kabul, which does have legislation on the books which permits it to prosecute war crimes but has never had the capacity to do so. But that government has got a lot of other troubles anyway because if, if the, if the uh, U.S. or international forces do withdraw, it's going to have to struggle to survive. So I, I can't see this getting anywhere, honestly. Uh, John, even if nobody does actually ever end up in the dock uh, as a result of this investigation, and despite those resources which Isabel mentions being committed to it, is, is there a value to doing something like this anyway, that there's a, a symbolic justice to it, in, in much the same way that there was an argument, not that I'm, I'm comparing the scale of what might have been perpetrated, that there was an argument made by some that even though the impeachment of Donald Trump wasn't going to go anywhere, it was good for the historical record that the attempt was made. 
Yes, I, I think you, you can argue that there's a symbolic value in going ahead with these things. Uh, the, uh, the, the November 2016 report, remember, identified 88 cases of torture uh, by uh, essentially CIA operatives in secret detention centers. Uh, if this does roll ahead, uh, names will start to emerge, details will start to come out. It will, at the very least, be horribly embarrassing uh, for, the, for the United States as a whole, but particularly for the CIA. That is nothing, however, compared to how embarrassing it's going to be for the Taliban. Uh, the 2016 document spends about three quarters of its space uh, talking about what the Taliban did. Uh, gruesome, designed to inflict maximum pain, they say. Uh, it's really nasty stuff. And uh, as the investigation rolls forward with the Taliban, who of course would have no intention of appearing in the dock, but can't really stop the ICC uh, discussing what they're doing, it's going to look pretty bad for them. I mean, on that point, Isabel, which is that it's it's doubt, you know, beyond any question that the Taliban committed crimes before, during the the war in Afghanistan, and indeed will carry on committing them afterwards. This, is, I think, is part of the United States argument for for abstaining from the ICC that it, it is it is held to a different standard. It is, in theory, at least, a law abiding democracy with an international reputation that it cares about. Where whereas the Taliban are not bound by any such laws, really don't seem to care about any of this stuff, and certain aspects of them, in much the same way that Islamic State did, would probably regard the brutality as the point. It's hard quite, it would be quite difficult to set a date in Afghanistan after which there were crimes against humanity, frankly. And, and you know, they were looking at sort of anything that happened after 2003. The Afghan civil war produced some hideous, mm. hideous crimes. The Northern Alliance, Dostum, people who are still, you know, prominent figures in Afghanistan all have crimes on the, on their hands. The weakness of the US position is that by, but they're not a signatory, they're not, they're not party to the ICC. But if you're going to do that and claim the virtue of being a, a responsible superpower and a democracy, it is incumbent on you to prosecute your own people. And that they have been very, very lacks in that respect. There have only been two cases, relatively isolated cases of contractors that who have been prosecuted for abuses in Afghanistan. And, you know, there, there clearly will, as John says, there will be a lot of stuff will come out. Um, and, and the United States will be asked why, if, if it won't participate in an international process, why is it not taking action domestically against people who commit war crimes and they will have to come up with a an answer to that. I think the the problem that the ICC has and um, amongst others is is the opportunity cost. It it does have limited resources. Is it better to go after cases that will end up with someone in dock um and and or or to or to make a symbolic act uh, of of publicity in effect. Uh, John, just a final quick thought on this subject. The the United States in particular will doubtless try to frame this as an act of arrant grandstanding by the ICC just to try and embarrass America. Is that entirely... Would that be a complete misapprehension of what's going on here? It's certainly not the way that the documents read. Uh, as I said, uh, they are much more concerned about the Taliban. It is the Taliban who stand accused of crimes against humanity, not the United States. The United States uh, is, is accused of a variety of, of lesser war crimes. crimes. Uh, war crimes, that's right, yes. Uh, uh, as indeed is the, the Afghan government. Um, I, I, yes, you're quite right. The US government can be relied upon to try to make out that this is just the world sort of trying to have, have a go at America again. Uh, that simply isn't the case. John Everard and Isabel Hilton will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. 
Thanks, Andrew. The former UN Secretary General Javier Perez de Cuellar has died. He was 100 years of age. During his two terms as UN Secretary General, he brokered peace agreements in Latin America, Africa, Asia and the Middle East. Perez de Cuellar also served as Peru's Prime Minister in the early 2000s. The low-cost UK airline Flybe has gone into administration. The carrier says the impact of the coronavirus outbreak on air travel was partly to blame for its collapse. But Flybe has had long-standing problems with its finances and narrowly avoided going bust in January. Around 2,000 jobs are at risk. And the Monocle Minute reports on the opening of New York's pre-eminent art fair, the Armory Show. It comes hot on the heels of last weekend's Art Dealers Association of America event. To find out about what to expect from the Armory Show, head to monocle.com forward slash minute and sign up to our daily bulletin. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with John Everard and Isabel Hilton. Let's look now at what has become the global struggle against the coronavirus COVID-19, with particular reference to the country where it seems to have originated, China, and the other country known to be worst affected, South Korea. China has so far recorded the overwhelming majority of the 3,500 deaths attributed globally to COVID-19 and has reported a new spike in cases in Wuhan, where the virus originated. This may, of course be better detection of the virus rather than any acceleration of its spread. Um, Isabel, it's always a question with anything self-reported by Chinese officials. Uh, How straight do we imagine China is being with the rest of the planet right now? Um, Not terribly. I I mean, what, what you see is the the reshaping of the narrative of this epidemic into, you know, China as heroic victim people's war uh, led by the equally heroic Xi Jinping. And uh, it, the continuing, absolutely continuing censorship of of reporting on realities in Wuhan. There's a, a publication called Tsai Xin, which is a business magazine in Beijing, which has been noted for its, uh, through actually as long as it's been in existence, for its very good investigative reporting. Um, And it has done a a spectacular job in Wuhan. Uh, But their latest report, which chronicled those crucial early weeks and the the repeated failures and suppression and inaction by the authorities, has just been taken down. Um, And that, you know, citizen journalists have been arrested, all kinds of... So so actually, the government effort is on censorship and, and, and on the construction of a narrative that puts them in a good light and disguises the manifold failures which have given the world coronavirus. Uh, John, there is an obvious compare and contrast here with the reaction in South Korea, not just of the authorities, but of the people. South Korea, a country you also know very well. Um, Does it strike you that there is a difference in response to a situation like this where the Chinese government feels like it needs to coerce the population because that's what it's always done, whereas a democratic government like South Korea's can bank to a large extent on the population cooperating. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And uh, sure enough, South Koreans, alarmed by what is happening in their country, uh, have cooperated 
actively. Uh, everybody has been avidly reading the guidance on how to how best to wash your hands, in a way to stopping the disease spreading. Uh, when uh, President Moon two days ago uh, declared a virtual state of war against the virus, nobody actually understood what that meant, but they all thought it was generally a good idea. Uh, in China, you just couldn't do that kind of thing. Uh, you, you, you are, you know, you're, you're forced into, as you say, into controlling posture. Uh, the narrative grows. We await uh, with bated breath the publication of that classic war against an epidemic uh, available in English, French, Arabic and Spanish, not just Chinese, coming out in 48 hours, demonstrating how President Xi Jinping virtually single-handed has <laughs> calmed international jangled nerves and solved the problem. In, in which effort he's had rather too much help, in my view, from the WHO, who have been amplifying the Chinese narrative of virtue as, as, as loudly as they can. And I, I simply don't, whilst at the same time, you know, failing to take steps in timely steps that that actually would have had a uh, an effect on on the on the epidemic and i think that is something that we probably need to look at next year when this has died down the chinese meanwhile are proposing their own version of the who apparently not not quite content with how far they have it subdued so it's um, it this is going to be an event that will have so many effects on so many institutions. Uh, John, we, we should, for all the good it's likely to do us and for all that we can see anything, uh, take a metaphorical look across the DMZ. We obviously have no idea what really is happening in North Korea about this or anything else. It would be astonishing if there was no spread of the virus to North Korea. But China's ambassador to the UN, Zhang Jun, has called for a lifting of sanctions against North Korea to help it better cope with whatever may eventuate. I mean, there may be an amount of opportunism underpinning that, but is there nevertheless actually a reasonable case to be made that there's something bigger going on here than whatever grudges the world may have against North Korea? Uh, yes, certainly there's something bigger going on. But the Sanctions Committee already, in, in zero time almost, uh, approved all the requests for uh, antiviral equipment that the North Koreans put forward. They, they simply waved through uh, in the, the current sanctions context. Much good it'll do them. I mean, North Korea is woefully short of everything. I mean, uh, one of the reasons that the North Koreans have not reported any uh, coronavirus victims uh, is not just politics that does that too. It's because they haven't got the reagents. Uh, you, North Korean laboratories cannot confirm a case yet. Uh, and of course, if you're a North Korean doctor with a patient before you who's who's got that giveaway or dry cough and high fever and you think it might be coronavirus, you're not going to report it upwards unless you are absolutely certain of your ground. Remember what happened to the doctor in Wuhan. Uh, Isabel, to go back to your point about how China is trying to sell this as some sort of advertisement for the Communist Party and the and the wisdom of its leader, and with all due acknowledgement that China is a big place with a lot of people in it and it is not uh, a monolith of opinion, is there any danger of, how to put it, a critical mass of scepticism beginning to develop uh, around that narrative that none of this is at all the fault of any failures of Chinese government and the response to it has been nothing short of magnificent. You mean, will the population believe it? Is the shorter way of asking that very long question, <laughs> yes. Um, the, the the trend is slightly against it because the lived experience of people, you know, doesn't doesn't resonate with, with the official narrative. Down to the point where now the, the Chinese are trying to restart the economy and so they've ordered various provinces to go back to normal. Um, but provinces are having a lot of difficulty going back to normal but in order to uh, appease the uh, their masters in Beijing, they are faking all the 
statistics. So they are reporting that they're back to normal and knowing that uh, that uh, electricity use, energy use is one of the ways of double checking whether a factory, for example, is functioning. They've got all the machines running and the lights on in empty factories in Zhejiang in order to persuade Beijing that, yes, we're obeying your orders. So, you know, you have so many double discourses going on in China. I would very much doubt anyone has a clear idea anywhere of what's happening. Okay, well, let's look finally on the news panel at the United States, where former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg's attempts to buy the presidency appear to have come to a halt. On the one hand, this appears heartening confirmation that money isn't absolutely everything in politics, but it did appear nevertheless to confirm that an outlay of $400 million will at least get you onto the candidate's debate stage and win you the approbation of the caucuses of American Samoa, the only territory Bloomberg won. Um... John, it it must seem strange to Mike. Actually, everything must seem strange to Mike Bloomberg. Um, But I do wonder if that's actually part of what's happened here, that when you are as rich as he is, one of the probably one of the dozen wealthiest people in history, it just doesn't really occur to you that there's anything you can't have if you want it. Well, I think there might be elements of that. Uh, certainly, what we know about Bloomberg's private behavior and private life suggests that his his his, his grip on what you might call sort of normal constraints of human behavior can be slightly shaky at times. Uh, and I, what really struck me in his renunciation speech was the look of sort of mild surprise. His face. <laughs> it, it, it was. It was I, I think I last saw that look in Ceausescu's eyes. He stood on that balcony and said, "Why aren't these people supporting me?" Uh, uh, Dead within twenty. <laughs> That's right, yes. I'm not that I think that can happen to Michael Bloomberg, but there was a sort of half a parallel there. Uh, yeah, reassuring that even if you spend half a billion dollars, um, you are you can't guarantee the presidency, that politics isn't for sale to that extent yet. I mean, Isabel, there has, I mean, obviously, in any democracy, money is important. It's very hard to hire staff or run for office or buy a big bus with your face painted on the side without it. Um but is it arguable, notwithstanding the fact that Bloomberg wasn't even the only billionaire in the race for the Democratic uh, uh, nomination, is it arguable that the online realm has in fact made it easier for candidates who don't have vast sums of money to raise large numbers of smaller amounts of money. Well, that, that appears to be true, and certainly Obama demonstrated that with small donations. But I, but I think the problem with Bloomberg and his money wasn't so much that, that money doesn't count in politics or can't buy you the presidency. It's that he left it rather late. I mean, what he did was dump a vast amount of money on you know television adver- advertising over a very short time, whereas if you look at the way you know the, the, the far right in the States has used its money, it's spent 20 years constructing public discourse. So it's been funding fake think tanks. It's been, you know, supporting everything that feeds into Fox News. It's been, it's understood that yes, money matters, but money has to be deployed in a particular way, which is about limiting what can be said, about directing, you know, um, public discourse into the into the line that you want. It's not just a matter of coming along and slapping a check down and saying, I'll have the presidency now, please, because people think, well, hang on a minute. It doesn't work like that. So so it's his failure to understand that that is really puzzling. I mean, John, should he... I mean, he still could. Uh, $400 million uh, is really neither here nor there uh, to Mike Bloomberg. Should more than I in a week. (laughs) Should he be thinking of other things he could do, in fact, to help, as he now says, Joe Biden towards the the presidency? Should he just, you know, buy Fox News and turn it into a a, a beard-stroking liberal outlet? 
Wow. That's oh, a great I, I, idea. That's Shall a great we suggest idea. it? Yes, I, I need to chew on that one for a while. <laughs> I mean, he has already said that the campaign offices and everything that he's set up are, are at the disposal of whoever wins the nomination. So to that extent, he, he's helping out. But yes, I mean, you know, not just helping uh, Joe Biden. You know, things you can do with half a billion dollars. I mean, you can transform whole national economies. You could probably sort of you know, do a great deal to wipe out a few killer diseases. And he blows it on a failed presidential bid. Kind of a pity, don't you think? I don't know, Isabel, if you had 400 million bucks lying around maybe you do i don't know but if you if you had 400 million dollars if you had 400 million dollars just lying around would you actually regard see i can see the temptation just thinking it's it's not the amount of money that matters to me one way or the other why not spend a month of my life having a bit of a swipe at becoming president of the united states well it depends i think he probably wanted to win it i mean he, he it, this is pretty humiliating but the other extraordinary thing is that that his campaign manager said today that that they claimed to success because at the beginning he had zero name recognition and he got up to 20%. I find that quite surprising for, for a, a, a man who's rich as Croesus in the United States that people didn't know who he was. Um, and if you wanted a, a more lasting kind of memorial to this unknown figure... <laughs> He he's good on philanthropy. He could do more of that. He could really, with that amount of money, he could transform something that needs transforming. Isabel Hilton and John Everard, thank you both very much for joining us. In a moment, we will hear about the future of sustainable fashion. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, much has been said about the rise of sustainable fashion, but will it ever step out of its niche and into the mainstream? Our fashion editor, Jamie Waters, reports. On the runways of Milan and Paris, designers are commenting with increasing urgency on the need to embrace eco-friendly clothing and practices. Away from the catwalks, though, on high streets around the world, a different story is often being told. The sustainability drive is a good and necessary thing, but one of the criticisms levelled at this movement is that sustainable items, such as a one-off piece made from recycled fabrics or an organic cotton jumper, are expensive. For many consumers, the decision to shop sustainably becomes not so much an ethical decision as an economic one. For the eco-friendly movement to have greater cut-through, it needs to be widely accessible. There are some heartening signs. Secondhand shopping is being championed like never before. See, most recently, Nordstrom opening a pre-loved goods store in New York. Meanwhile, Helena Helmerson, the former head of sustainability at H&M, was recently appointed the Swedish fast fashion giant's new CEO. The brand has engaged with sustainability and recycling in the past, but many are hoping that Helmerson's background will see her home in on these topics, especially on the matter of overproduction with increased intensity. Elsewhere, reports suggest that clothing that takes less of a toll on the environment is appearing more in fast fashion shops, although there are concerns that brands are using words like sustainable and organic as selling points without many facts to back up these claims. This can't be about lip service or greenwashing. Brands need to find a way to produce clothes responsibly while keeping costs down. The pressure is on. 
That was Jamie Waters, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marco Sippi and researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Madeleine Pollard. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 